Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Pam McElwee, who's a professor of human ecology at Rutgers University, and Dr. Sarah Diamond, who's associate professor of biology at Case Western Reserve University. They join me to discuss their recent bioscience article, which is entitled Governing for Transformative Change Across the Biodiversity Climate Society Nexus. And that article describes principles for addressing global environmental crises much more effectively than governance has up until this point, which I think we would all agree is sorely needed. Uh, with no further ado, though, let's go straight to the interview. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Great. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, so I thought we might get started with a question about, you know, the article itself and, you know, kind of how it came to be and, you know, um, what kinds of things it's talking about and, and kind of, you know, recommending for governance in the future. Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. So Sarah and I were both lucky enough to be selected for the first joint workshop between the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, IPBES, which is really a mouthful, but um, they both play really important roles. So the IPCC does these regular assessments of climate change, and IPBES does something similar for biodiversity ecosystems and ecosystem services. And they, even though they've been on parallel tracks for a long time and they have a lot of overlaps, they'd never actually worked together until this workshop report. Um, and it was meant to be an in-person meeting originally where 50 experts, half from IPCC and half from IBES, got together in London and talked about the interlinkages between biodiversity and climate. And then, of course, we had a real-life intersection of biodiversity and climate with um, COVID um, because it ended up um, being a fully online workshop because we couldn't meet in person um, in 2020 as we had meant to. So it was all done online. We met regularly. Um, the whole report was structured in chapters, looking at different elements of biodiversity and climate. And so Sarah was on chapter six and I was on chapter seven. And these were the end of the report, really sort of summing up some of the biophysical issues um, that had come up in previous chapters and trying to figure out, well, what do we do now that we've said that you know, things that we do for biodiversity are generally good for climate, but the things that we do for climate are not always good for biodiversity. Um, and where do people come into all of that? It was really these last two sort of summing up chapters. And once we finished the workshop report, we thought like, let's condense these into a more succinct um, paper that people could really grab onto and understand what we're talking about when we say that biodiversity, climate, and society have to be addressed together and we need transformative governance in order to do that. So that was really the genesis of the paper. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a really nice opportunity to, once the workshop report was all compiled and synthesized, to kind of see the, the big picture and then sort of pull out the important nuggets and like Pam says, sort of condense them down into um, this distillation of the, the really key messages of the workshop report. Okay. And I think, Pam, you hinted at it a little bit about, you know, um, in describing sort of the interactions and interplay between biodiversity, climate, and society. Um, but can we talk for a moment about, you know, sort of where previous governance efforts have fallen short in perhaps not you know, recognizing that, um, you know, biodiversity, climate, society, nexus, and sort of addressing them, you know, holistically. Um, what have been those earlier shortcomings? Yeah, I mean, you could see it visibly in the institutional structures we have at the global level to tackle these problems, which is 
We have the UN framework on climate change, which deals with climate. That's the well-known Paris agreement that we should hold global temperatures to no more than two degrees Celsius. We have the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is currently being negotiated again for its next decade or so of targets that's supposed to govern biodiversity. Um, those two are totally separate institutions. They both arose out of the 1992 Rio Earth Summit ages ago, um, but they've really evolved on separate tracks and occasionally they intersect, but they're really totally different um, institutional mechanisms. And then we have the Sustainable Development Goals, which are people focused and several of them do have explicit climate and environment um, components. So the goal for life underwater is about marine environments. The goal for life on land is about terrestrial environments. Um, but even within the SDGs, which are supposed to be more integrative, um, you often have targets that are either ecosystem focused or climate focused, but not both in the same target. Um, and so we've just continually butt our heads up against the fact that we're just treating these as separate issues still, even in 2022. Um, whereas the, the workshop report and then the paper that came out of it really point out that to continue to do that runs the risk of exacerbating all three of those problems, the development problem, the climate problem, and the biodiversity problem, particularly around thresholds of risk, where we're getting close to tipping points um, that could send us into you know, negative spirals of ecosystems from which they cannot recover. They have complete state changes. Um, and our governance systems, because they are still siloed, are not equipped to see those early and then respond quickly enough. That's the real risk here. Okay, and I was wondering now if we could talk perhaps about, you know, just an example of a situation in governance in which that siloed approach falls short. You know, what's a practical scenario in which, you know, if you fail to sort of integrate those silos, um, things can possibly go astray, perhaps leading to, you know, the overrunning of a tipping point or something like that? Yeah, I mean, a, a great example is where we have climate focused interventions only that don't take into account biodiversity. That's the workshop report points out that basically anything you do for biodiversity, it's either going to be good for climate or, or neutral. So this, these are things like protected areas, um, restoring ecosystems. These generally get you good climate benefits in terms of carbon sequestration. Um, but the reverse can't be said for climate. So there's a lot of things that we do for climate that are going to have negative repercussions for biodiversity. And that's where the siloed thinking is really problematic. Um, so a great example of this are biofuels, um, which the EU and the US, we have an ethanol standard, um, basically put in um, several decades ago, um, thinking that this was going to be a really climate focused um, approach that it was going to enable us to reduce dependence on fossil fuels by using biologically based fuels. Um, and it was entirely driven by the sort of economics and the climate impacts. Well, you know, where was biodiversity in all of this? Well, if it had been in there, we would have noted that, you know, when you have large scale biofuels, you're potentially encroaching on a lot of natural ecosystems, particularly grasslands. Grasslands in Brazil and the US um, have really been converted to biofuels at, at, at dangerous levels, high levels and, and, and with detrimental impacts on biodiversity. Um, a lot of the sort of even second generation biofuels, ones that might be used um, for these sort of novel um, uh, bioenergy carbon capture and storage plans or BECs as they're known that are sort of in the agenda now with the, the climate um, uh, folks. 
Um, these, even the second generation biofields, which are more sort of tree croppy, um, even those can, you know, they're often monocrops, they can be extended into places that are not appropriate, they can use too much water, they compete with native vegetation. Um, yeah, so it's just a perfect example is like, if, if you had had two goals, if you had both biodiversity and climate, biofuels would not have been your first choice um, to deal with this issue. Uh, and so it's sort of highlighting, you know, if we can think about multifunctionality and not just letting one thing uh, dominate the, the policy approaches we put in place, then we think you're going to get those better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, similar sort of deal with afforestation too, right? I mean, you hear about all these plans to, you know, just plant trees wherever you can, however many you can. Um, but oftentimes they do that, um, you know, from the carbon perspective and the climate perspective, but not the biodiversity perspective. And so you have this, you know, stand of monoculture that is not diverse, is not sort of fulfilling these important ecosystem services. Um, and in some places, you know, there's really sort of high um, carbon storage potential already in this ecosystem, like the grasslands, like Pam mentioned, um, and, and planting trees there would be absolutely disastrous. And so we need to think about both of those things simultaneously, the climate and the biodiversity um, when moving forward. And, and that's, again, where sort of governance fails with this siloed approach because we're potentially harming biodiversity through, um, you know, practices that would improve uh, the climate. Yeah, and is this also a case in which, you know, um, you could have deleterious effects for, you know, those who are living in those areas as well? Of, of course, it's it's going to cause a massive upheaval if you're, you know, living in a highly biodiverse area and receiving those ecosystem services. And then, you know, you wind up with a monocrop of, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do a lot of my work in Southeast Asia, and this is a classic story in Southeast Asia where people get displaced by large-scale afforestation or biofuels, palm oil being the, the great example of Southeast Asia, um, where small numbers of people, um, some well-off smallholders might benefit um, from the conversion of natural forest to palm oil um, or afforestation. Um, but it's generally people who are already large landowners, who already have access to political institutions, whereas everybody else, the people who actually depend on natural forests, um, oftentimes women um, who don't have secure land rights to agricultural plots of their own are very dependent on commonly managed uh, resources, whether they're wetlands where they go collect crabs and fish or tree or forest where they go collect, you know, fruits and medicinals and other things. Um, and I saw this play out in field work in Vietnam where um, right at the time where I was doing some work, um, Vietnam was embarking on this massive tree planting campaign to plant 5 million hectares of additional forests. And they went the monocrop route and they planted a bunch of exotic acacias and they replaced native vegetation that was multifunctional for ecosystem services, um, food, medic medicines, all sorts of stuff, um, and turned it into acacia, which is used um, to grow gar you know, garden furniture, um, which is then exported to Europe primarily, a little bit to the US as well. Um, and women lost access to these lands that they had been using. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. So the social impacts of all of this are really important to bring in as well. And how do you begin to sort of go about addressing that type of situation, you know, where you've got a hammer, everything is tending to look like a nail, you've got a single set of objectives, a single set of targets, um, and you know, you're not taking into consideration all of those other things. Um, there's certainly not going to be an easy way to do that. There's no easy solution. Um, but is there a way to sort of break down that sort of siloed approach? Yeah, there's no easy way. I mean, I think 
one of the things we tried to do in the article is um, talk about some bright spots where things are happening. And so we talk about cities, for example. Cities are a good place where um, there's some innovative integration happening, um, particularly around um, this idea that, you know, cities are often the front lines of some of the climate impacts, like, you know, they already have urban heat island effect. And so climate um, heat extremes on top of that are, are really problematic for a lot of cities. Um, flood control, big issue for a lot of cities as well, as we know, precipitation is going to increase in some areas. So they're really at the forefront of experiencing climate impacts. And they're obviously very interested in um, mitigation, but a lot of cities are combining mitigation opportunities with biodiversity um, because they see the multifunctional benefits. So urban street trees, um, managing cities um, to be more resistant to flooding through natural forms of infrastructure. So making sure that but wetlands aren't paved over, you know, changing to more pervious surfaces, um, incorporating parks and green spaces into flood control plans, um, having more green roofs, all sorts of stuff. So cities are really where a lot of this more integrative um, uh, approach is taking place. And they're seeing the social benefits as well. So, you know, you have cooler cities, so you have less use of air conditioning, you're protecting your elderly folks um, who are really vulnerable to, to heat strokes and heat, heat waves. Um, you might be putting in urban gardening as part of your green roofs and your green space approach. That's going to improve food security for low-income folks sometimes. Um, the psychological benefits of being out in green space have all been documented um, very well. So I think there's some real laboratories here where that's happening. Um, but as we argue in the article, it's not happening fast enough and it's not happening in all the places it needs to be happening. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that's kind of the main upshot of the article is really just kind of being like, hey, pay attention. These things are intimately connected with one another, climate and biodiversity and the social dimension as well. Um, and the fact that because of those interlinkages, things can go really bad really quickly if you sort of harm biodiversity and ecosystem services, you're harming carbon storage, you're harming the climate with sort of, you know, downstream consequences for people, et cetera, et cetera. But because they're intimately linked as well. If you help one, right, you sort of improve biodiversity, you improve ecosystem function, you improve carbon storage when you're helping the climate and you're helping people and things like that. And so it really is that kind of double-edged sword, I think, that we're trying to sort of tease apart um, in the article and sort of make people aware of with the, the aim of, of making uh, governance structures a little bit more efficient. Yeah. And I actually have a personal example of how bad we're um, continuing to separate these crises. Um, so I was hospitalized last week, actually, with Lyme disease, um, which I have never had before. Mm -hmm. um, and we were really the epicenter. I'm in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, we treat Lyme disease as a health issue. Um, and so, you know, my insurance company is going to get a gigantic bill from me having been in the hospital for three days. Um, trying to battle this this Lyme infection. Um, but the costs of that are not seen as either biodiversity or climate costs, when in fact we know that, particularly in the Northeast, Lyme disease is projected um, to increase in both scope and intensity um, due to the warming temperatures, which the ticks like, and then higher precipitation, so it's going to change the vegetation structure. 
Um, and then in the Northeast, we haven't done a great job of managing a lot of our ecosystems with that in mind. And so, you know, like we have these booming deer populations that are not very well controlled, and that's part of the problem. So it is, there's a biodiversity component on how we manage our wild systems and our, particularly in New Jersey, our sort of peri-urban um, ecosystems. And then this climate element, and then the cost of public health, and these are treated as three totally separate things instead of saying, okay, you know, this is going to be a major cost to the Northeast is dealing with this, like the number one infectious disease um, prior to COVID in terms of the number of people who get affected in the Northeast each year. And it's not in like the New Jersey climate plan, right? It's like, we don't treat it this as a climate problem. And so if we just thought about these things more systematically, I think we would see, I mean, for sure, our estimates of the benefits of more rapid climate action would would appear so much more um, politically and economically feasible because we would have accounted for these intersections. No, that's that's a, a fantastic example, and it's one that I'll be able to use too because I've also been uh, I've also wound up in the hospital with a, a, a tick related ailment. I had the I had the meat allergy thing. Um, it's miserable, yeah, and they're spreading because yeah. of climate. Absolutely, yeah. yep. Yeah, that's that's terrible. I I hope you're feeling much much better. I am um, good. <laughs> no, thank you, antibiotics. <laughs> Indeed. Um, let's talk for a moment now about the transformative element that you discuss in the article. You mentioned that we're not doing enough quickly enough and that you know our incremental changes have not been particularly successful. Um, let's chat a little bit about that imperative to do things in a transformative way. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the the really difficult question because so much of our policy, I mean, you see that here in the United States, like it's so incremental and slow. Like it is so hard to get policies passed at the federal level. Um, they often are so reactive. Um, we just don't have that sort of forward thinking, you know, ability to see the nexus between biodiversity, climate and society for what it is and treat it in a comprehensive way. But that's what we need. And if we just look at over time, all of the incremental policies that we have applied to these, um, they're not getting us where we need to be fast enough. I mean, in climate, we're, I mean, we are seeing progress. We're seeing a lot of pledges towards net zero that countries are making, um, but it's slow going. So, you know, we may be able to avoid the worst of like four or five degrees Celsius temperature change by the end of the century. We're now maybe like more at two or three, um, but we need to be even lower than that, right? So it's about the, the speed um, in particular that we need to be faster particularly in light of um, the dangers of tipping points and thresholds in our biophysical systems, like our governance systems, the incremental ones just cannot move fast enough to deal with those. And then some of the mechanisms that we have in place um, just don't have the, the sort of adaptiveness and the equitability um, that would really characterize a transformative governance approach. So I'll give you a, a good example, like for deforestation, one of the main tools we've been trying to use um, are like market-based incentives, um, carbon offsets. You know, company buy a carbon offset, the money goes to plant trees or protect trees someplace. Um, the company feels like it's done something to contribute to climate. Um, some money has gone for uh, forestry someplace and everyone's like, oh, well, that's a win-win. Um, it's not a win-win when the trees that you've just paid money for have burnt in the most recent California wildfire, which has been the case. Um, you know, it's not a win-win when, you know, you don't have the mechanisms in place at the local level to be able to use the money that you got for your carbon offset to have more adaptive forestry. And oftentimes these carbon offsets, 
it's like, I'm going to buy whatever the cheapest is. And the cheapest forest offset may not be the best managed forest, managed for adaptiveness, like distributing money to the right communities. It may just literally be like the cheapest carbon price. And so that mechanism, that market-based mechanism is not going to be particularly transformative because it's too slow to respond to the forest tipping points where they're affected by wildfire and other climate changes. Um, It's not equitable enough. It doesn't have, in most cases, good benefit distribution mechanisms, and it's not adaptive enough. It it, it doesn't get us the speed um, that we need. And so, you know, looking at, at where the gaps are now, that sort of gives us a sense like, okay, a transformative approach would, would need to really do things differently. Um, and that that's the challenge is, is moving those really slow systems um, towards that transformative change. Yeah, and just to pick up on the sort of um, biophysical tipping point that you mentioned too, Pam, um, there's huge uncertainty in where those tipping points lie. And so it's incredibly important for us to kind of stay well below those thresholds and those tipping points. And the only way we're gonna get there is through sort of more proactive, less reactive um, change and actual transformative change rather than these little incremental steps. Absolutely. And the discussion of tipping points reminded me that I wanted to talk about um, another sort of tipping point that the article discusses, which is social tipping points. Um, So, you know, we're all very familiar with the fact that oftentimes there's some resistance among members of some publics uh, toward various elements of environmental governance. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the tipping points that might cause that to, you know, switch the other way under certain circumstances? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we in the paper talk about the idea of social tipping points is precisely because um, they have the potential to to be positive. We often think of tipping points in the biophysical sense that they're quite negative. They lead to this big state change, which is often detrimental. Um, And there's this well-known approach um, that a lot of people know about the planetary boundaries approach, um, where... Um, we have these biophysical boundaries, and as we get closer, we exceed them. There are all of these negative consequences. Um, well, that approach, although it's been quite popular, it still sort of replicates the the single slice, right? The climate boundary, the biodiversity boundary, the pollution boundary. Um, and it also doesn't get at the idea that could we harness this, this tipping point idea um, in the social or governance realm in the sense that um, once you start going in a certain direction, you sort of accelerate, right? It's it's potentially nonlinear, um, but that could be harnessed for good. And so we use a couple of examples in the paper where we could anticipate positive social tipping points where things like divestment from fossil fuel companies that are not pledging to move to renewables, right? They're putting themselves at risk, um, particularly around stranded assets. Like it's not going to be a financially viable place to invest your money if they're not responding to the climate crisis, in which case, if people stop investing in those fossil fuel companies that are refusing to do anything, you know, it may start slowly, but then it could really pick up, like everybody pulls their money out, right? We know how some of these financial uh, movements happen really rapidly. Um, And so that's a real risk for those companies that are unwilling to treat climate seriously. Um, But it would have a positive tipping effect because it would really push them to do something, um, otherwise be be left behind. Um, But there's other examples like electric vehicle adoption where, you know, it starts very slowly, but it's a combination of getting the structural changes like the chargers in place and the financing mechanisms. And then the social element, like seeing your neighbor 
realizing, you know, that this is not some big sacrifice. And, you know, we may see in this era of high gas prices that be one of those mechanisms that really pushes people towards EV adoption pretty quickly. And um, just on a personal level, we were the first ones on our street in New Jersey to have an EV uh, about almost four years ago now. And now three other people of our house of 10, right? So in that short period of time, and they all came by and they said, how do you like it? Like, was it hard to put the charger on? Like it was that personal seeing us not struggling, but in fact, enjoying our, our car. And, you know, we knew we weren't going to convince everybody in suburban New Jersey to give up cars. Um, but seeing that, that we loved the car that we got and how easy it was. And now we're getting even more questions, like since we don't have to buy $5 a gallon gas, but it's that sort of like, it just sort of takes off uh, at a point. And can we harness that for good is what we mean by the social tipping points. That's so funny. So we have done the same thing in our neighborhood, except with solar panels. Um, and everyone asks us about it. And now like every other house on our street, solar panels, boom. And, and just like, you know, asking us about it, asking us about, you know, putting energy back into the grid and like having, a, you know, zero dollar a month energy bill and things like that. And it really, it really spreads like yeah. wildfire. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And they're not always predictable, which is what makes it hard, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone always focuses on the predictable things, like can we bring the cost down? Can we have the infrastructure in place? But the the like talking to your neighbors part, that's the hard that's the part that's hard to predict, but often can be, I think, the most consequential. Because those are the people that you know and you trust. And you're like, you know, their recommendation actually means a lot. If they say that car is good or that solar panel is good, I'm gonna listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and I've noticed that too. And, you know, even in my area, I'm in the U.S. South, and it's perhaps an area where you wouldn't expect to see a lot of solar panels and electric cars, although we do get a lot of sun. Um, and, you know, it does seem to be catching on. And I'm sure that, you know, word of mouth is driving a lot of that. Um, but I think to close out this interview, I wanted to just touch on each of the recommendations that the article makes. Um, we've discussed all of them a little bit already, uh, but I think, you know, it could be kind of a useful framework just to kind of go through, chat through them again, uh, really briefly, uh, just to kind of, you know, give a little bit of structure to that understanding. So uh, the first one I wanted to chat about um, was going to be the focus on multifunctional interventions. You know, what does that really mean in this BCS, uh, Biodiversity Climate Society Nexus context? Yeah, our, our main point here is, you know, you might, in a much more climate focused approach, you know, might have like, you know, we want to get X number of gigatons of carbon, that's going to be our goal for this particular policy. But what we're saying is, could you accept like 80% less um, than what you would in a, in a climate focused policy, but by doing so you get much more in terms of biodiversity and social benefits, like make it truly multifunctional, um, don't have just a single metric. And by having that flexibility, um, hopefully you'll get these these more much more transformative um, interventions. Okay, great. And then looking next at, you know, um, integrating and innovating across scales, you know, obviously, it, it, you know, we've, we've talked about examples that are happening on kind of the micro level. Um, but, you know, how do we how do we do that and, and get it to sort of scale up to, you know, the global transformation that we desperately need? Yeah, I think cities are a great example here as well, because they're obviously on, you know, a local scale, although a lot of cities are mega cities and have significant regional impacts. Um, but cities are getting together to exchange ideas on how they're doing this. There's this whole movement in China called sponge cities, 
which is really about um, making sure that they're flood resilient through use of uh, green space and, and ecosystems. Um, and they are talking to one another. They're influencing national policy around this. Um, we see the same here in the U.S. There's lots of coalitions of cities, particularly around climate, um, and they share examples. Um, and particularly, you know, in the past few years when we didn't have a strong um, federal climate policy, those cities would often go to those international conferences um, and talk to their international counterparts. Um, so they're already scaling that up as best they can. Um, and it's sort of, you know, how can we encourage that? You know, there's a lot of social learning involved when we have these networks, but they can be really, really powerful. So it doesn't all have to be top down. A lot of it is going to be coming from the bottom up, people self-organizing these networks. Okay. And just in moving right on, um, you know, how do we create coalitions of support for these, these types of things? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to recognizing allies and places you might not expect them um, and, and using that to create these coalitions. So a great example would be um, there's a ton of folks working on poverty issues um, that aren't always necessarily brought into environmental issues. But if you actually think about how much um, an absence of access to ecosystem services or um, all of the negative impacts of climate, how that is going to exacerbate poverty, particularly in cities. Um, I think there's a sort of natural way to bring in a lot of um, anti-poverty campaigners um, to help you build this coalition for saying, you know, we need more green space. And as part of that, we need more urban uh, agriculture. And as part of that, we need to recognize housing insecurity. And as part of that, we need, you know, and so really take this, this uh, multifaceted approach. And so you've got a coalition in place that can advocate for those integrated policies. And that's going to be really crucial because these are not environmental things alone, right? They really cut across everything, the business sector, you know, education, health, you know, with our disease examples. So it's those coalitions of places that you have allies, but you might not have brought them in before. I think it's going to be really important. And that also feeds in, of course, into, you know, um, building equity into these approaches as well. Um, and we've we've talked already about social uh, social tipping points. So I think that gives kind of a great overview, you know, for our listeners of sort of the directions in which we should be moving. I'm wondering now what's next for this work? You know, um, when is the next meeting, workshop? Um, you know, where is this information and, and, and advice going to be fed into? And, and what kinds of things can we expect down the road? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm taking on a big new project, which is um, IBBES has two new assessments. So this came out of a workshop report, which is a sort of scale down. It's not a full assessment. Um, assessments go through multi-year review processes. They get approved by governments. They're, they're really a big um, institutional mechanism that we have to feed science into policy. And so IBES has two new ones coming up. Um, once on transformative change, we we're just talking about how important that is. And so that's going to be really crucial. And they're going to have a lot of case studies of where has transformative change actually happened? Where have we seen it from this, the, the small scale up to larger scales? So that has just um, got going this year. Um, and the second one is called the Nexus Assessment. And so it's uh, an assessment that's going to be looking at the cross-cutting issues between biodiversity, climate, health, food, and water which are all absolutely essential to treat um, holistically. And, you know, when we treat them as silos, we run into all the problems that, that we've been talking about. Um, and so that's getting started at the same time. They're really, these two are running on parallel tracks. Um, and so I'm going to co-chair the Nexus assessment. So we just had our first authors meeting. Um, we're really excited. This um, previous workshop report, we're drawing on that. Um, there was a pandemics report that came out last year that was also really important. So that's going to feed into it for the health aspect. Um, so we're going to take this forward. We hope that 
both of these reports will really inform um, the Paris Agreement um, as we move towards you know the, this decade that we're in is absolutely crucial to meeting Paris Agreement um, goals. Um, the Convention on Biological Diversity is negotiating its next 10, 20, 30 years right now as we speak. They just announced today that they're going to finally have an in-person meeting towards the end of this year. Um, and so, yeah, so we're going to take this work forward and try to inform those mechanisms. Um, and then I personally am also working on the U.S. National Climate Assessment, and that's really key for us in the, in the U.S. to inform Congress on what the sort of state of impacts are and where we can um, make improvements. And I'm working on the ecosystems chapter, so it's my chance to integrate biodiversity and people and, and climate together and think about how we can do a better job of that here in the U.S. All right, great. So it sounds like we have quite a bit to look forward to. Um, I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me today. I've, I've certainly learned a lot. Great. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.